The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Over the years, I've heard people, even friends, Christian friends, say things like, the church is not a building, obviously, and therefore I don't need an organization, is the thinking there, implying I don't want or feel like I need the accountability of others. Because, have you ever heard people say this? I am the church. And sadly, those who continue to think that way, and I know some, they're not only, they not only leave the church, but they become their own authority, ignoring those who speak the truth and disregarding the voice and commands of Jesus. And sadly, eventually, they bear no resemblance to him. Yes, our faith, it is, it is individual, it is a personal relationship with Jesus, but don't take that to a wrong conclusion, because Jesus said that he, he consecrates himself, he sets himself apart for the purpose of sanctifying his church. And Paul recognizes in Ephesians that the glory of God in Christ Jesus for all generations is made evident in the church. Yes, the church is not a building, but it's also not you as an individual. Because Peter describes you as one part of a spiritual structure that is the church. You are one body part among many that make up the body of Christ, his church. And what we'll see in our text is that the body of Christ is both both universal and local. It's an accountable, encouraging, local community that exhorts and encourages one another to follow Jesus while also being unified with other churches in Christ. So as Christians, we have a, a personal relationship with Jesus... And he calls us to be in a relationship with a local church body made up of different parts, gifts, and and roles that God gives to us, that he assigns, that he defines for us in his word. And these work together. And all of these then local bodies, they are united in one faith that can recite something like the Apostles' Creed. We believe the same essential truths of the Christian faith. And Jesus is the one we're called to resemble. And thinking of the different parts that make up this church, this church, I'm so thankful for each of you. I'm so thankful for you, for the various ways in which you you use your gifts. And like Barnabas, who is in our text, encourage faithfulness to the Lord with with steadfast purpose. Truly, we need each other. And this is God's will. This is his design. This is his plan. And man, I am so blessed and so grateful to be one of your pastors and have the privilege of preaching God's word. So before we go to God's word, let's pray together. 
Lord Jesus, you consecrated yourself for the sake of your church, for the sake of of changing or sanctifying us. You are the only begotten Son, perfectly unique. There is no one, Lord. There is no one like you. You are our hero, our Savior, truly God and truly man. And we forever celebrate the fact that your death has paid the price for our sins. And that you, you are risen. You are ascended in glory, seated on the throne. And truly, Lord, your kingdom is now. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who unites us to you, who helps us and enables us to know the truth of your word and and to then apply it and obey it and tell others about it. Lord God, please, would you use this time of worship, all of the ingredients of worship to tune our hearts to love you, the one true God who graciously saves us. We pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, if you feel like staying seated, if it's hard for you, feel free. Don't worry about that. But if you're able, stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 11, we're going to read, follow along as I read verses 19 to 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus. To look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word. You may be seated. I think that's it. Okay, this section of chapter 11, what does it do? It recalls uh, the following verses from chapter 8 of Acts. As a result of, of Stephen being stoned to death, there arose on that day a great persecution. A persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed. Now those who were scattered 
went about preaching the word. So Luke is just, he's picking it back up. He's, he's recalling this, and now he's telling the results of this scattering and, and the preaching that happened as a result of that. And it's the first time we read about evangelism being done by ordinary, unnamed believers. If you remember, Pentecost, there's this gathering of Jews and likely some God-fearers, Jews scattered because of, really because of, a, of a his, their history of exile, diaspora, they're scattered, they remain in the places of exile. They settle in those various lands. They had settled in those lands. And those who became interested in the God of the Bible, God-fearers, all of these traveled to Jerusalem, joining the Jews there to celebrate the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. So you've got this, this, these dispersed Jews, we've called them Hellenized Jews or Hellenistic Jews because they've taken on Greek culture. And then they have all these synagogues in their various places that have an influence on Gentiles who become interested in the God of the Bible. That's what we call God-fearers. And they're coming together for this feast. That's, that's the group that's, that's there. And really... One of the wonders of God's sovereign plan, it came in the form of evil. Hundreds of years before this celebration of Pentecost, in the conquest and exile of his people, beginning with Babylon and then Persia, over time some of the Jews, they, they returned to Jerusalem and we've referred to them in that context of Pentecost as the Hebrew Jews. While many others remained in their various lands, establishing synagogues in these various places, continuing their practice of Judaism. And we've referred to them as Hellenistic Jews. And what we end up with is, is the scattered presence of God because of the exile, because of the conquest of these nations and how they scattered the people. And they're worshiping in these various synagogues throughout various regions and countries. Okay, then Greece and Alexander the Great comes on the scene. And the result of this conquest was Hellenization. Hellenization, which assimilated the various people into Greek culture and created what it did by God's wonderful plan. It created a common language throughout the known world. So a Hellenist was simply a non-Greek who spoke Greek and took on Greek culture. And some Hellenists were Jews who stayed in these various lands. And if you remember... We've also seen that other category, the God-fears, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, the Roman centurion Claudius that we just read about. These are God-fears. They were people influenced by these scattered synagogues, becoming aware of and, and interested in the God of the Bible. They participate to the extent that they could in the synagogues, um, but they didn't submit to the Jewish 
requirements. They didn't submit to circumcision and, and the various laws. They didn't become proselytes. They didn't convert, but they're interested. So by the good providence of God, his, his people, they have a, a presence throughout the known world. And because of Hellenization, there's a common language. People can communicate. And then Rome comes on the scene and establishes roadways. And so there's not only a a common language, but access to travel and share the good news. In hindsight, we can always see that God knows what he's doing. That his plan is perfect. And this was the perfect time in world history for Jesus to come. For his church to be established and to, to go and make disciples of all nations. God he often works in this way. I mean, Israel was, was confused and wondering, God, why are you doing this? Where are you? Why, why is Babylon, why is this happening? All this evil, God uses evil, right? And with hindsight, we can look back and we say, oh God, that was so good. Look at what you did. People look at the cross and and say, can anything good come of this evil? And it's the greatest good of all. This is how God works. And we see it in our own lives, don't we? God often works through evil circumstances for the greatest good. And so, so what does that do? That gives us, oh, that gives us hope. That enables us to trust Him. It gives us hope that as our own culture grows more and more evil, and it is, God knows what he's doing. He's sovereign. He'll bring about good. So at Pentecost, there's this gathering of these Hellenized Jews and God-fearers and the Jews who... who, um, lived in Jerusalem. And those who come to Christ, well, they stay in Jerusalem. Right? Initially, they stay. After all, why would you want to leave a wonder of God's work where you can sit under the teaching of the apostles and pray together and have community and worship and care for one another's needs? And remember, there's this great caring of needs because you've got all of these people from outside staying who don't have work and have need and they want to stay and so there's there's financial need that occurs but then after Stephen's stoning there's this great persecution in Jerusalem and the church scatters and we can see the hand of God in ordaining this as what well. as evil and terrible as persecution is we can see what God is doing scattering his people All of these Hellenized Christians, Christians now, would flee to their various homelands and take the gospel with them. Isn't God incredible? Verse 19 tells us that some who were scattered went to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. It says speaking only to Jews. And what this likely means is is these... uh, these Hellenized Christians, well, of course, they go back to the synagogue. And who's at the synagogue? Jews. And they're preaching the gospel to 
Jews there. But then verse 20 tells us that others from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and spoke to the Hellenists. And I think what Luke means by Hellenists here, Hellenists is such a general category, right? It's, it's a general category. Non-Greeks who speak now speak Greek and take on Greek culture. And I think what Luke is emphasizing here, because he's already emphasized the Jews, what he intends to communicate is that they, they spoke to pagans. And that's like another category that we haven't seen yet. Pagans who had no exposure whatsoever to the God of the Bible. They're taking the gospel to them. And one hint that we see at the end of verse 20 is that Luke says they preach the Lord Jesus. Luke doesn't use the word Christ, which means Messiah, because pagan Gentiles would have no concept, no history of knowing about a Jewish Messiah. Even God-fearers like Cornelius, they would they'd be familiar with a Christ, with a Messiah. So most likely, Luke is telling us that the gospel is reaching another, another category of people altogether. Gentiles who are pagans. And Antioch was most definitely a mix of people that included pagans. Antioch, it's around... 300 miles north of Jerusalem, along the eastern Mediterranean Sea. One of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. It's the the capital of the Roman province of Syria. It was the center of trade, commerce, scholarship. A big city, big city, around half a million people. Not only was it a, a commercial center, but Antioch, It was a religious center for pagan religions that practiced temple prostitution. So, obviously, it's also immoral. And yet very sophisticated. Because of its size, Antioch became the hub for Christian missions. The intellectual center for the development of Christian theology over the next 300 years of church history. So Jerusalem, it's the Jewish base of Christianity, while Antioch becomes the headquarters for the expansion of Christianity throughout the world. The stage is set. And verse 21 tells us that the hand of the Lord was with these scattered believers as they took the gospel to both Jew and pagans and a great number of believed and turned to the Lord. This is the this is the first church made up of gentile pagans, Jews and God-fearers. And together they were becoming a new people called Christians. Christ is building his church. And there are four characteristics about the church that I see that we see in our text that I want to focus on this morning. Four characteristics in Christ's church. First, before Barnabas even goes to Antioch, before, before Paul comes on the scene, what we see is that a great number of people believed. Why? Because the hand of the Lord was with them. So it's not just apostles. 
It's not only prominent leaders within the church. It's God's design to use ordinary Christians to speak the word and to preach the good news that Jesus is Lord. That's you. That's me. That's our job. And and in light of this first characteristic, we should be confident, shouldn't we? We should be confident because the reason there's ever any success has to do with the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord, it's a reference to the providence of God, meaning His invisible hand sovereignly makes provision through visible means, accomplishing His will. The means by which God uses to bring many people to himself is the speech of faithful believers. But without the hand of God, that speech would just land flat on deaf ears. Apart from the sovereign power of God, our words, they are incapable of saving anyone because salvation belongs to the Lord. Faith is a gift of God. God is the one who must speak and command light to overcome the darkness of our hearts. Apart from the hand of God reaching in and removing our hearts of stone and giving us hearts that desire Him, no amount of words would cause any of us to repent and believe in Jesus. Jesus said that unless one is born again, First, born again, that is, apart from the hand of God that first gives us an ability to see and a heart that loves spiritual truth, apart from Him first causing us to be spiritually born anew, we can't even see the kingdom of God, let alone want Jesus. It takes the hand of God to save you. And it's the hand of God that takes your words and makes them alive in the person that you share the gospel with. So we hear that and we think, well, and certainly God does not need us. Right? God is all powerful. He is sovereign. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He could just zap people. Theological word, zap people um, and heal their spiritual blindness apart from any person, any means. Why doesn't he do that? Because he is so good. He is so gracious. What a joy, what an incredible privilege it is to be an instrument in the hand of God for the salvation of another. God uses means to accomplish his will. He invites us, he invites us into his work. It's like a, a parent making a meal or, or doing projects around the house, perfectly capable of doing it on their own, but in love, what do parents do? Yes, the process is more clumsy and it takes a lot longer. But parents bring their children into the work and help them stir and steady the screwdriver in the hand and guide them, involve them in the process. 
God has graciously, lovingly involved us in the most wonderful work of all, the salvation of a person's soul. He uses us to help people see how wonderful and how great a hero Jesus truly is. He chooses to use us, his church. He tells Paul in Acts 26, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Oh, we should be committed to praying, praying, God, prepare me. God, use me. God, please orchestrate an opportunity for me to tell someone about Jesus. God, open my eyes to all of the opportunities throughout my day. God, may your hand be upon me as I speak. So this is a wonderful characteristic that should be true in Christ's church, that we recognize, that we depend upon the hand of the Lord in all that we do. A second characteristic we see in the church is in the ministry of Barnabas. We need to be Barnabases. Barnabas. We need to be like Barnabas. Who exhorted. He exhorted and encouraged others in the church. The news of what was happening in Antioch, it got back to the church in Jerusalem. And and there's there's always debate about stuff like this. Why why did they send someone? Are they concerned about what's going on? Are they curious? Are they excited to see what's happening? I don't know. But they send wisely Barnabas to go and investigate. We saw Barnabas in chapter 4 selling his field to meet a need within the church. We see him again in chapter 9 when everyone was afraid of the the newly converted Saul of Tarsus. And it was Barnabas that, that brought him, kind of took him by the hand, introduced him to the apostles, defended his conversion. What an encourager. His real name's Joseph, but he's such a such an encouraging guy that they nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So maybe his dad was really something too. I don't know. In verse 23, we read that when he came and saw the great growth in the church at Antioch, much more than the church in Jerusalem, he got jealous and started to criticize their methods. No. I'm sorry, that's what I might be tempted to do. Instead, it says that he was glad. He saw that this work was the grace of God. And he was was so happy to see it. And when I read this, I think, oh, I want to be this way. To hear about other churches in the valley or in the distant land of Grant's Pass. Or to hear of their to hear of their growth and effectiveness for Christ's kingdom and think, praise God, yes. Use them, God. Bless them, God. And then to pray for them and encourage them. And and yes, there may be, you know, why are there a lot of churches? Well, we have doctrinal differences. 
And doctrine is important, super important. But can they also recite the Apostles' Creed? Are they a part of Christ's universal church? Is God using them for Christ's kingdom and his glory? We should see the grace of God like Barnabas and be glad, not competitive. We should pray for them. In fact, let's do that right now. Let's pray. Lord God, we lift up. We lift up First Baptist Church here in Metford and Pastor Greg. We pray for Pastor Quentin at Cornerstone, Pastor Dustin at Trinity Presbyterian, Kofi at Redeemer Bible Fellowship, Pastor Zab at The Story. Lord, these are, these are just a few of your churches, and we, we thank you for them and ask that you bless that you grow these and many other faithful churches in our valley. Give them growth, both in numbers and in knowing and loving. You protect them, we pray. Give them a, a growing and confident faith in you. Lord, make them and us useful for the sake of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So verse 23 says that that Barnabas exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He exhorted, or in some translations, encouraged. And when you think about it, those two words don't... They're different, aren't they? The Greek word parakaleo. It's an interesting word because it's both... It's both strong and tender. It's both calling and coming alongside and comforting. It's like the hand of God commanding us to do, but helping us do it. It's related to the word for the Holy Spirit, paraclete. The Holy Spirit who is our helper, our comforter, our strength. The one who convicts us, who calls us, our advocate. See those strong and not weak, but soft and comforting. So it's interesting that some translations, they say exhort, which seems aggressive, it seems strong. And others say encourage, which seems softer and more gentle and supportive. It's both. It's grace and truth. And the reason Barnabas is such an encourager and an exhorter, the reason verse 24 says that he is a good man, is because he's full of the Holy Spirit. His nickname and his actions remind us of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. He's exhorting them to stay strong and faithful to the Lord, to know the truth of who Jesus is. And in doing so, he's encouraging them, supporting them, helping them to live out their faith in a consistent way to the gospel, like we thought about last week. What a great characteristic to have in the church. And many of you, you are this. You are exhorters and encouragers. You love biblical truth. And it's important, as it should be, that you love biblical truth. And this truth is not only, it's not only head knowledge, right? 
But it's, as we thought about last week, it's, it's the gospel, it's the fact that the gospel changes everything. Biblical truth, it should make us humble. It should make us gracious and faithfully trusting in the hand of God to guide us. We need Bereans who aren't afraid to check everything by searching the scriptures, but with the intent of encouraging us as a body to remain faithful in Christ. Grace and truth, just like Jesus, who's described in John chapter 1 as full of grace and truth. And what an incredibly humble example that, that Barnabas is to us. After all, I mean, he's kind of a big shot coming from Jerusalem, sent by the apostles. And what would you think when he sees this exploding church, the grace of God, all of these people coming, and he's the guy that's sent? What would you would think he would say, hey, I'm going to take charge. I'm going to pastor this place. They need me. But what does he do? He apparently thinks, I'm not sure I have the right gifts for this role. I'd like to say and help, but the guy they really need, I know the guy, it's Paul. And what an encouragement it must have been to Paul. You know, we've been reading through these chapters in a matter of weeks, but in reality, Paul has been in Tarsus for eight years, probably feeling forgotten, probably a bit confused because God said he would use him for the Gentiles, and eight years have got silence, crickets, nothing. Paul, Paul who lost everything as a result of his conversion. Because of his conversion to Christianity, his Jewish parents have disowned him. He's back in Tarsus, his hometown, but his family wants nothing to do with him because he's a Christian and they're faithful Jews. And we get a hint of this as Paul writes in Philippians, for the sake of Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things. How hard, how discouraging. And then Barnabas, Barnabas comes and tracks him down. What an encouragement to Paul to be tracked down by Barnabas, to come back to Antioch and for a whole year use the great gifts that he has to teach them and to build this church. And verse 26 tells us that it was there in Antioch that the term Christian was first used. And this is the third characteristic we should see in the church. We should remind the world of Jesus. A year's worth of teaching and a consistent view of the gospel apparently changed everything in the lives of these people. They stood out. Paul saturated them in the truth, and the truth matters. Doctrine is important. It's not just head knowledge. The truth of the gospel, it should make us gracious and humble and confident in God in all of life's circumstances. And these people, they stood out. As we, as we grow in our understanding of Jesus, we grow in our love for Him. And this love ought to be evident in our lives. It, it ought to stand out. So if the reputation of the church in general or our church specific, if the reputation is bad, 
It's either because it's either because of ignorance to biblical truth or because of a wrong or inconsistent response to right truth. Understanding forgiveness in the gospel ought to make us a forgiving people. Understanding grace ought to make us gracious. Understanding the truth of sacrificial love causes us to humbly serve and give of ourselves as Jesus did. And apparently these believers, they couldn't keep their mouths shut about the one they were learning to love. Keep in mind that these new believers didn't, they didn't come up with the name Christian. They didn't invent, hey, what should we, you know, we got a club here. What should we call ourselves? Certain hats to wear. They didn't come up with the name Christians. No, they, they became known as Christ's people because of their response to Christ's gospel. They spoke of him and they lived for him. Wouldn't it be great for people to look at us? That, that's our goal. We want people to look at us and think of Jesus. The, the goal of marriage is that it's an illustration of Jesus and his church, not the other way around. People should look at your marriage and, and say, wow, the way that husband loves his wife, that reminds me of Jesus. Wow, the, the way that wife honors her husband, that's like the churches to Jesus. People ought to look at us and think of Jesus. Here's an interesting perspective from Derek Thomas. He writes, Those of us who live in the West no longer live under the influence of the Judeo-Christian ethic as much as our ancestors did. Our society is rapidly becoming secularized. The reserves that Christianity once poured into the culture have been spent. And Christianity is regarded as a relic of a bygone era. We may find ourselves hankering for the past in which we might think life was easier. Undoubtedly, young people face temptations today that many of us would not have dreamed of in our own youth. Perhaps we draw the conclusion that the church cannot possibly survive, let alone thrive in such a society. But what emerged in Antioch, a pagan Roman city, was a community in which Christian values and zeal were so palpable that unbelievers could see it, even if they derided them for it. Such an environment sifted the wheat from the chaff. Only true Christianity could survive in such an environment. Sooner or later, nominal Christianity will accommodate itself to the pagan culture. Sooner or later, nominal Christianity will accommodate itself to the pagan culture. It will adopt its values and conform its levels of, to its levels of acceptability. If Christianity is no more than, than keeping up with the Joneses and the Joneses become increasingly pagan, the result will be that such Christianity will itself become increasingly pagan. We see in this? The term Christian 
was likely derogatory because they were so countercultural. Could it be that God is once again using, in our day, evil for good? Well, the last couple of years of COVID and lockdowns due to the church, was God sifting the wheat from the chaff? Are we seeing a growing evil? A culture of death? Blatant paganism? Honoring those who blaspheme the cross of Christ as a matter of pride? Let's face it. The founding of our country had its roots in Christianity, but we are nowhere close to being a Christian nation. And I suppose the question to the church is, are we preparing? Are we growing in our love for Jesus in order to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose in the midst of a pagan surrounding? And we are increasingly in a pagan surrounding. In a pagan surrounding where... Where is our emphasis as the church? Where is our emphasis and involvement? Where is our hope? Is it politics? It seems that the church in Antioch focused on faithfully growing in their resemblance to Jesus and sharing the gospel with their pagan neighbors. And this, this is what changed the world. I'm not saying don't be involved in your community and government and politics. But really, what is powerful? It's the gospel. It's us growing in our love for Jesus. It's us becoming a close community as Christ's church and loving each other. And I know it sounds obvious, but, but the church should resemble it should talk about Jesus. Lastly, a characteristic we see in the church is, is this incredible, unusual generosity at the end of our text. Luke describes, he describes this great famine that occurred during the reign of Claudius. In AD 45, the Nile River flooded and Egypt's grain harvest was devastated. Grain prices soared throughout the Roman Empire. Hmm, food prices going up. Grain prices soared throughout the Roman Empire. The next, over the next two years, famine spread throughout Judea. And this, this is what Agabus prophesied about. And in hearing this prophecy, we don't see the church in Antioch hoarding food and materials for themselves. Okay, but if you're sensing our own food shortage and economic collapse, really, it's okay. It's wise to plan for hard times and, and to save some, you should be saving some food and supplies. I, I, always, I say to Jen, make sure it's stuff that we'll actually eat if nothing happens. <laughs> but if it has a long shelf life, okay, let's do it. It's okay, to, it's okay to do that. This was the wisdom of Joseph in Egypt, right? The Proverbs tell us to 
Go to the ant and consider her ways and be wise. So we should do these things. We have every, really, truly, we have every reason to expect some very hard times ahead. But the example we see with the church in Antioch, it's one of community. Caring generously for those in need. And not simply looking out for themselves. And we do this because we're not simply individuals, right? We're Christ's church. I listened to a sermon recently that, that pointed out how people, people tend to assume that, that good times are normal. That's my lifetime. Good times are normal. Yeah, it'll be a, a down year, but it'll come back up. It's been our tendency to think that in 10 or 20 years from now, we'll be better off, that our children will live lives better than ours, that our investments will go up, that the value of our homes will go up. We just assume this. From 1870 to 1910, this is how people thought. And then there was World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, Holocaust. And in the 40s, thousands of people in Europe were starving to death in the winters. And they were thinking, this is all there is. There will be no good times. And I don't say this to scare anyone, but the reality of history is that there are good times and there are evil or very hard times. And I'm no prophet like Agabus, and biblically speaking, they don't exist anymore. But it sure seems like we need to get ready for some hard times. It wouldn't hurt. But even with that in mind, how do we prepare? How do we get ready? It comes back to the church being the church. The church being about the gospel and growing strong in our faithfulness to Jesus. Because nothing will test us like hard times or possibly persecution. What we see in Acts 11 is an incredible Jesus-like generosity to others. Instead of only looking out for themselves, this, this church in Antioch who knows nothing about the church in Jerusalem, they know they exist. They probably know that the reason they heard the gospel had originated there, but they have no connection with them. After all, there's a lot of pagans there and The Christians in Jerusalem, they're Jews, Jewish Christians. So instead of only looking out for themselves, this church in Antioch, these these former pagans, sent a gift to their fellow Christians in Judea. A church that was, for the first time, a mix of Jews and Gentiles. They embraced the fact that their, their primary identity, it's not about race. It's not Jew or Gentile any longer. It's this new category of people called Christian. And some of their people, some of their Christian brothers and sisters need help. So they determined, not out of compulsion, but according to everyone's own ability to generously send relief. Being ready means that we're Christ's church that we look to and trust in his sovereign hand, that we encourage each other in the faith, that we become 
a people who resemble Jesus and that we generously care for the needs of others. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's truly beautiful. It's glorifying to our Lord. And I pray this will be true of us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we see how amazing you are in your perfect plan. And the beauty of transformed lives because of the good news of Jesus. Lord, help us to know your truth. Help us to love your word with a desire to know and love you. Make us a body that trusts in your sovereign hand of providence. Make us a a people who see the importance and the need to exhort and encourage one another. To not just live life on our own but to truly be a caring community that reminds people of Jesus. Thank you for this example of your church. Use us, we pray, for the sake of Jesus. Amen.